Is he a master of spectacular trickery, or is he something more? You will have to decide when you confront the strangest, most incredible hero ever to appear in comics. You will see what he does, you will wonder how he does it, but always waiting in the wings are his two greatest enemies, the men who challenge him and death himself. Meet Mr. Miracle! Mr. Miracle! Mr. Miracle! 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 Dark Side is... Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazana, and today's episode is all about Dark Side is Mr. Miracle, the 12 issue maxi series written by Tom King with art by Mitch Jarrods. Uh, this is hands down the best cover to cover book from 2018, period. Marvel, DC, just whatever. Comic books. This is the cream of the crop of last year. And the idea for this kind of came about from a friend of mine who was telling me about... Uh, kind of asking if I was planning on doing a best of 2018. And to be honest, I had thought about it, but I kind of feel like since we're coming to the end of March now, I kind of missed my window. That's more of like a December or January kind of episode. But it got me thinking, and it got me thinking about what I thought the best of 2018 was when it came to pop culture, when it came to the stuff that we cover on this podcast. Comic books, uh, movies, TV shows, the whole shebang. And the thing that kept coming back to me was Mr. Miracle. Mr. Miracle is a masterpiece in comic book form. Uh, a lot of people talk about, in reverence, their love for books like Watchmen, uh, Killing Joke, Dark Knight Returns, All-Star Superman. I am one of those people who talks about All-Star Superman with that kind of reverence. But I can comfortably say, after reading through the book... Uh, during its normal release cycle, once a month, once every couple months, depending on delays, um, and then rereading it again in the trade collection, I can honestly say that Mr. Miracle really ranks itself up with those greats. And that is why in today's episode we're going to be talking all about Mr. Miracle. Before we get to that point, uh, I've got some news, some catch-up. We've been trying to kind of started this last episode where I'm trying to kind of keep up on current events, current events uh, as it pertains to comics and this podcast. So we're going to fire off a couple of those and uh, then we'll jump into the main meat of this uh, of this episode. And first of all, uh, first up on the docket is the Avengers Endgame trailer, the newest trailer that dropped for the uh, 
for the fourth Avengers film. It's going to be coming out the end of next month. Uh, it And it made me so mad because the trailer itself dropped the day after last week's episode. And so I had to wait an entire week to talk about this trailer. And it has been killing me. I gotta tell you, I was just overwhelmed. Uh, when the first... Uh, I actually got a, uh, a text that morning, the morning that it came out, from a friend asking me if I'd seen it yet. And I really struggled, honestly, because I didn't know if I wanted to watch the trailer or not. Because nowadays, when you watch trailers, they really just... they tend to spoil the movie, especially when you're talking about second, third, fourth trailers. Uh, the Superman, the Batman Superman Dawn of Justice movie was heavily spoiled by its second trailer and pretty famously was uh, basically responsible for spoiling the reveal of Doomsday. And I really didn't want that to be the case. I didn't want to be spoiled by a trailer and I couldn't help myself. I had to watch it. So when I did, I am happy to report that it is pretty much the same as we've been getting from the previous uh, trailers, the two previous trailers that came out beforehand. And I was surprised by that because you would think that in this day and age with how trailers are now you would see more they would want to reveal more and i really have to applaud disney and marvel for keeping their cards close to the chest not really showing a whole lot i read somewhere that they've been saying that all of the stuff from the trailer is from the first 15 minutes of the movie and if that's the case that is crazy because we've seen some pretty interesting stuff this trailer in itself uh, was showing some interesting stuff really focusing on the on the original six not so much Bruce Banner yet we haven't really gotten a big uh, push for him in these trailers and I mean at this point we've been really focusing on uh, Steve, on Natasha, and now in this trailer we really got a big focus on Clint. We saw a lot from him. We saw him on the family farm, you know, the famous Joss Whedon Hawkeye family farm that I really liked and a lot of people did not like. And we kind of get the idea that his family probably got dusted and now for some reason he is... I'm assuming in Japan with all the neon from the lights and he is hunting people down trying to find answers I'm assuming so I'm interested to see where that goes uh, we have everybody suited up in their fresh clean new white Avengers suits that to me kind of resemble not just the suit that Hank Pym wore in Ant-Man and the Wasp when he went into the quantum realm to try and find um, Janet, but they also, and this is really dumb, they also kind of resemble the spacesuits that the Avengers wore during the Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. And as a huge fan of that series, someone who is forever disappointed that that series didn't get to continue and was replaced by the much inferior Marvel Avengers. Avengers Assemble. Uh, I loved seeing that, and I liked kind of, even if it was unintentional, that kind of throwback to it. But yeah, the Endgame trailer basically ramping up this idea of, you know, people move on, they're not moving on. Um, also, the big thing coming out of it was hashtag whatever it takes. And I'm interested 
to see exactly if they follow through with that. You have to think if they put it this far forward into the uh, promotional material for the film, that that's got to have a bearing on the story. And we have to assume that there are going to be sacrifices made. So I'm interested to see where they go with that. Uh, we also got to get another peek at a comic accurate rocket raccoon uniform from the old school annihilation guardians and i popped huge for that i was a big fan of seeing that one and i am just really excited at how much they haven't shown i'm so excited we did get a little uh brief kind of look at cap in his full captain america gear scales and all with his shield uh dusted up probably from some kind of battle possibly near the end i'm not sure we still at this point do not know what is going to happen in this film and i love that but i am super stoked and i am really excited another thing i'm really excited about james gunn has been reinstated as the director of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, whether this is because of the huge fan outcry for him to be reinstated, whether this was a uh, Disney market thing where they were like, we're going to distance ourselves from him, and after some time passes, we're going to bring him back. Who knows? All I know is that I'm really excited and really intrigued at exactly what's going to happen because he's still the writer and director of The Suicide Squad for DC. And he has made a public commitment that he is going to finish Suicide Squad before he starts working on Guardians of the Galaxy. And I'm interested to see if he can make the two franchises feel different enough. This is a really unique situation that we haven't really seen before. Uh, we've got kind of a uh, prototype of this situation when Joss Whedon took over for Zack Snyder in the Justice League film, but that was mostly Zack Snyder's vision, and Joss Whedon was just brought in to finish it up and then add little quirks and flares that ultimately, I think, kind of hurt the product. But this is from opening to the credits going to be James Gunn for both films and if he is able to make them feel different enough while making both of them as successful as he can that is going to be a huge feat and something that I think we're going to look back on and really contribute to the continuing uh, craze that superheroes and comic books in general have on film and TV currently and it's, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. Another really exciting thing I am more cautiously optimistic about is we got the news that Grant Morrison has joined the writing team for The Flash film starring Ezra Miller, uh, released at some point. I'm sure, and he is actually going to be writing his treatment for the script with Ezra Miller, and they are promising kind of a darker take, a more twisted, uh, gritty take, and a more Morrison take, which I'm excited for. Uh, Grant Morrison, in recent years, I think has been kind of hit or miss for me personally. Um, I've really... I didn't enjoy uh, Grant Morrison's Green Lantern. Uh, it has its fans, and I'm glad that it does. Uh, 
Grant Morrison has mostly kind of stuck to the more godlike, whether literal or figuratively, uh, characters when it comes to DC, your Batmans, your Supermans. And it's interesting to see him go in on Green Lantern, but I, it just wasn't for me. And I'm interested to see if he kind of brings that same sensibility if we, or if he tries to bring something else, like his multiverse, mul- multiversity run uh, with The Flash. Because Flash, of course, is able to jump through time using the cos- cosmic treadmill. He's able to vibrate his molecules to reach into other Earths. And I'm interested to see if that ends up being the case. So we'll see about that. Another thing that I'm really interested about on the comic book side is we got our very first look at Superman Year One, written by Frank Miller with art by John Romita Jr. Um, It looks interesting. It looks like John Romita Jr. art, and the last time that he really wasn't involved in Superman was one of my, uh, I think one of my favorite Superman books that came out of the new 52 when he was teaming up with jeff johns on the men of tomorrow kind of arc i really enjoyed that they also debuted superman's uh super flare or solar flare ability that we really haven't seen since um and that's kind of neither here nor there i really liked the development of that ability but that is kind of more of a new 52 superman ability though since now with Rebirth and with uh, Superman Reborn, they're both both pre New Fifty Two Superman and New Fifty Two Superman are now one Superman with both of their histories. It's confusing, but either way, I'm really interested to see where they go with this. Uh, Frank Miller is kind of on thin ice with me. I'll be honest. His uh, Dark Knights Three, I you know really tried my best to enjoy. I bought every issue against the uh advisements of people at my local comic book shop and i really you know gritted my teeth went through it and in the end i didn't really enjoy it so i'm hoping that going back to his sensibilities when it comes to um superman all of his ideas when it comes to that character i really i really want this to be good i really want this to be good Especially because Superman's my boy, and telling a year one story is difficult, but telling a year one story can be really exciting and really fulfilling too. I'm really excited for Joshua Williamson's Flash Year One. That's going to be fantastic. Joshua Williamson has such a great handle on Barry Allen, even though I personally prefer Wally West. And I really, I'm excited to see where that goes. And if they do end up uh, mentioning Wally in any kind of fashion, that that I'm going to be looking for in uh, Flash Year One. But another thing that I was kind of surprised about, uh, but ended up really enjoying, was John Cryer as Lex Luthor on the Supergirl show. Supergirl has kind of flown under the radar with me with this most recent season. They've introduced uh, Manchester Black, which is one of my favorite Superman villains, but otherwise they haven't really caught my attention but when they announced the casting of john crier as lex luthor that caught my attention because that is so out of left field casting especially kind of when you consider that dc also chose jesse eisenberg for lex luthor and i would argue i would argue that john crier is an even stranger choice than jesse eisenberg 
However, I really dug John Cryer as Lex Luthor. <laughs> I have to say he knocked it out of the park in this most recent episode, and it looks like, continuing forward, he's going to be a major player, if not the main villain for the rest of the season. So I'm excited. I really enjoyed seeing him at, at his most Lex Luthor-y. He's going to get more familiar with the character, and I'm excited to see how his performance grows with it. But uh, overall, I really liked his first outing. And then finally, on the news docket today, we have the Disney and the Disney, the Disney and Fox merger is official. Uh, Disney officially owns 20th Century Fox and all of the movie and film stuff that goes with it. This is, of course, the big thing that people have been both looking forward to and dreading. Looking forward to in the respect that. This is going to bring back all of the Fox-owned characters. Deadpool, the X-Men, possibly Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, Galactus. Just in time for the new and improved Phase 4 to kick off with Spider-Man Far From Home this coming July. But this is also... A lot of people are nervous about this because this is moving more towards the uh, monopoly when it comes to film. And as someone who is uh, in the working actor category i am kind of approaching this as a caution as an optimistic uh though still cautionary observer i really want this to be a good thing i want us to get all the benefits that people have talked about but i am concerned that at a certain point all the studios are going to be doing the same thing but that is for then. Uh, we will keep an eye on that situation as it develops, and I'll keep you folks informed as much as I can when it comes to that stuff. But for now, we jump into the, the main course, the entree of this podcast. I'm sorry, I, uh, I work in a restaurant, so I'm throwing out a lot of restaurant terms right now. But Mr. Miracle. Mr. Miracle... Uh, written by Tom King with art by Mitch Jarrods is once again one of if not the best comic from 2018 hands down and before we jump into it I want to throw up the spoilers warning uh, there are going to be spoilers talked about in this review in this analysis and you need to if you haven't yet do yourself a favor and read this book um, a lot of people I've seen have uh, very strong opinions on it, whether it's positive, whether it's negative. Um, I think that has a lot to do with Tom King's perception currently with comic book fans. Uh, he's either a very good writer or a total hack, depending on who you talk to. I tend to fall into the former category, but... I can admit when I think that Tom King is not doing what I think is the strongest or best work that he could be doing. Uh, I have seen him at his best. I was first introduced him, introduced to him with the Omega Men, which I adore. I love the Omega Men. And then, you know, on the flip side, his Batman run has been... Uh, a story of peaks and valleys. He's gone from the top of the top to really losing a lot of what I think brought 
people to the dance when it came to his version of Batman when he was first brought on. This is, oh, this is the guy who did Omega Men. This is the guy who did The Vision. This is going to be an incredible take. And I think in certain aspects, that's absolutely the case. Certain things that he's done with Batman and his treatment of Alfred with all of the stuff between both selena and bruce that he's built upon really kind of bringing to the reader bringing to me a way to look at selena that i hadn't really looked at prior to reading his run and also all of the great stuff that he's done with the uh interconnections of the dc universe when it comes to batman the uh the arc leading up to the wedding with Batman interacting with Wonder Woman, with him interacting with Superman, are some of my favorite issues of this entire rebirth launch when it comes to DC. But whether you like his stuff, whether you don't like his stuff, I think a majority of people, including myself, can agree that Mr. Miracle might just be the best thing he's ever written. And I say that having read a lot of comics. I say that reading having read a lot of Tom King's comics. I have uh, every single issue from his run sitting in my long box, and I really want to stress the fact that I, though I try to come at everything with a positive outlook, that when I am disappointed by something, I will let you know. I was disappointed by the 50th anniversary, or the 50th issue of Batman. But again, personally, it's, you know, I should have prepared myself not to get that emotionally invested in it. But I also have to look at it as this is the halfway point of a greater 100-issue story. So we'll see where that goes. But that is that is Batman. We're going to set that to the side. Right now, we're going to talk about Mr. Miracle, which I think is an instant classic. But before we get into that, I'm going to talk about, give you a little background on Mr. Miracle in case you either picked up the comic and you didn't really understand it, or you just want kind of a refresher course on who Mr. Miracle is. Mr. Miracle, also known as Scott Free, is a new god born to the High Father during a previous period in time during the war between New Genesis and Apocalypse. High Father was famously in a war with dark side with no end in sight and no discernible winner until the two came to an armistice where they would trade sons at the cost of peace they would trade their sons dark side would trade his son to high father and new genesis high father would trade his son and his heir to dark side and apocalypse and with this trade this would bring peace to the fourth world. This would bring peace between these two warring factions and hopefully would keep the new gods basically sated for a while. Uh, Darkseid's son, named Orion by the High Father, grew up in a life of luxury, uh, kind of being this warmongering, got, you know, angel from the heavens, while Scott Free, so named by his caretaker, and I use that term loosely, uh, Granny Goodness, was forced to grow up in the X-Pits, was forced to grow up in a life of hell, trying to escape constantly with Granny Goodness capturing him each time and torturing him and then playfully giving him the name Scott Free. And eventually, Scott did escape and made his way to our 
reality, to Earth, where he happened upon the traveling Mr. Miracle and his, uh, his sidekick Oberon. And when Mr. Miracle was killed, Scott took up his late mentor's outfit, his moniker, and his profession and became Mr. Miracle. Uh, later on, he came into contact with a with another child of the pits, Big Barda, of the female Furies, and the two eventually fell in love and did marry. And that kind of gives you the background of Mr. Miracle. He is often kind of taken in this uh, Christ figure meets hilarious showman cross. Uh, he is... Officially, you know, he is technically the son of God, but he is also known as the world's greatest escape artist, the many world's greatest escape artist, and he makes a profession out of doing these Houdini-esque escapes while also balancing his life as a god living among mortal men and women. So that is your background on Mr. Miracle and Big Barda. Uh, that is pretty much what you need to know. There was a war, two sides traded babies, those babies grew up, and became their own individual people. And that kind of gets you into the basic knowledge of Mr. Miracle. Uh, what's great about Mr. Miracle, the trade, does kind of give you a quick recap in case you weren't aware. So definitely look at that. Uh, the first thing I really want to get into, the first thing I have to get into is uh, the writing. Tom King, as we mentioned earlier, is a writer who really likes to draw off of real experiences and apply them to fictional characters. Tom King was a former CIA agent who decided that he would be, I think, happier uh, writing comics, and who wouldn't, right? So he has really brought his sensibilities coming from that world coming from that uh, military intelligence agency background and applying them to these characters i heard on a interview that he was doing on a i, I want to say it was on a podcast he talked about um his first few books that being you know vision omega men sheriff of babylon the first part um were really focused on the horrors of war and really dealing with that and that his second kind of batch that being like you know batman mr miracle uh they were m more focused on the trauma that comes with it and i think that that's incredible because when you think about it when you come down to it trauma comes in a variety of forms trauma comes through your childhood trauma comes through a an inciting event and the idea that he applies those kind of sensibilities to mr miracle to comic book heroes who you know at their core can be summed up in the super friends show as you know these you know cut and paste characters just with different faces and different powers but I re what I really appreciate about modern comics and what I really appreciate about Tom King is he brings a certain sense of realism to these characters who otherwise are kind of outlandish. If you look at Mr. Miracle, his costume is ridiculous. The entire fourth world is ridiculous. And, you know, frankly, if it had been come up with today in this comic landscape, people would laugh it off, you know, laugh it off the page. And I 
really appreciate that he's trying to retain what made those characters work back then while also injecting them with modern sensibilities such as depression such as ptsd and thoughts of suicide the comic opens up with i mean not opens up but the whole story kicks off with scott free trying to kill himself there is a fairly graphic uh full page spread of him with his wrists slit sitting in the bathroom adorned in his uh in his mr miracle costume which i think really blends together well the idea of this is going to be looking at looking past the bright colors and seeing inside of who that person behind the mask is and as someone who has gone through uh depression at different stages of my life as someone who at one point or another has you know contemplated suicide and suicide has uh, affected my family uh, it's a big deal I see you know different points where Scott is overwhelmed with his depression and it is heartbreaking to watch there's a scene fairly later on in the uh, in the run where he's in the shower and it's just a static shot where you just see him in the shower and it's almost almost like you can see it in real time those thoughts creep in and he just falls and he curls up in this fetal position in the shower because he's he's depressed he's depressed he's dealing with the ptsd of growing up the way that he did on apocalypse in the pits and trying to balance that with his new life of not just being um, Mr. Miracle, not just living on Earth, but also halfway through the series, becoming a father and bringing all of that, bringing all of that idea of this is something that freaks me out. This is something that uh, the idea of I have to now take care of this little human when I don't believe that I was given the opportunity to learn how to do that is terrifying. And I think they approach it as honestly as you can when it comes to these kind of situations. Uh, Scott Free is an incredible character, and he goes through so much in this book. But we're going to touch on that in a little bit. The next thing I have on my notes is Mitch Jarrods. Because Mitch Jarrods is as... Or Garrods? It's one of those. And I apologize. But it's I know for sure it's one of those. Um, he does just like Tom King, some of, if not his best work in this book. Uh, every page is meaningful. Every panel, they stick to a nine-panel grid, which I am both a fan of and also not a fan of. You see different aspects where it could be uh, kind of liberating because you know that you have to stick in this format so that you it really takes away a lot of the guesswork when it comes to, oh, how do I have to translate this? Because it's pretty well translated to the reader because they have to follow a certain format. On the other hand, it it runs the risk of being kind of boring. Um, so I, and I have to say, does not ever fall into that. This book, Mr. Miracle, never falls into feeling formulaic. Uh, every issue has a twist, every issue has a turn, and every issue is a spotlight for Mitch Garrett's 
I think I'm just going to jump back and forth because I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. Um, it is a spotlight for him to just tell this story. And they make fun of it, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but uh, this almost kind of feels like, and especially uh, since Tom King did say in interviews uh, something kind of akin to this, that this was kind of a modern version of the uh, Marvel method where Tom King kind of came up with the general story, he came up with the scripting, and he really let uh, Mitch Garrods really run wild with how to translate that to the reader. And a quick note as well, Nick Darrington was responsible for the covers, and I am a huge fan of Nick Darrington's art. He brings a certain amount of weirdness to the character that I just, I adore, and he was the you know the first image you see of mr miracle on the cover of mr miracle number one the single issue uh is nick darrington's cover with the noseless mask which i thought was an incredible choice i didn't know if i liked it when i first saw it because i was so used to uh the mask that you know shows his nose but it really reinvents that look a look for a character in a way that i don't think anyone would have chosen and whether that was a jared's pick or a darrington pick i'm super happy with it what uh i also really am happy with when it comes to the art in this book is the use of static backgrounds and what i mean by that is there are many points in the story uh, where you will have a perfect framework of where everything's happening uh, Garrett's really sets it up there's uh, many scenes that are in front of a static background whether that be you know in front of a table on apocalypse whether that be in front of a boom tube there are a couple conversations just in front of a boom tube there's a lot of conversations in uh, their living room where the background doesn't move, but the characters move through it, and it really gives it a sense of um, time passing. It really gives it a sense of flow and movement between the characters, and it really helps to frame the scenes, and I really enjoy that. And you don't see that a lot uh, nowadays. You don't really see static backgrounds. It's always trying to pick out the newest uh, angle to a scene, and while that's great. There are also times where I think uh, a stack background will really elevate a scene because it forces you not to pay attention to any of the background noise. It really forces you to pay attention to the small quirks and movements of the characters. Uh, so I really liked that. Another thing I really liked is this idea of putting reality in fiction. We touched upon it uh, on the story beats of depression, PTSD, suicide, uh, all of those. But what I also really like is that most of this book takes place in Los Angeles. And as someone who lives in Los Angeles, I there are moments across this whole story where I completely uh, relate to Mr. Miracle as a character. Mr. Miracle, who is a god. Mr. Miracle, who is a daring super escape artist. Mr. Miracle, who is the, you know, uncrowned king of heaven. And when you're able to do that by putting him on the 101 or them saying, you know, it'll get better when it gets onto the 405 and, the, and Barda saying, no, no, it won't because the 405 is notoriously awful and it always is. Um... 
that's that's a masterstroke in itself. I really loved all of the uh, Los Angeles sensibilities that are brought to this book, whether it's landmarks like Santa Monica Pier or any of the places that they dine at, or whether it's just talking about L.A., talking about you know people running up to them and asking for pictures, um, them just driving or them sitting in the uh, living room of their condo. I really enjoy all of those quiet moments and the story itself makes you appreciate those more because the, it's in those quiet moments that we really get to see Scott kind of enjoy living. Uh, whether it's sarcastically or not, this book is full of dry humor and you really get to see him kind of get to stop and smell the roses at times when it comes to these quieter, smaller moments. All of these drives on the highway with uh, Barda when he's sitting in his living room, whether it's by himself at night or whether he's curled up next to Barda in bed. These moments where you see him just trying to be a normal guy. Uh, issue 5 is one of my favorite issues because it's all about them just being normal. Them just doing normal things, walking in the park, getting breakfast at a, getting breakfast, uh, visiting Oberon's grave, um, using the mother box essentially like a smartphone, and basically you know asking it you know how long it'll take to get to someplace using Google Maps or whatever uh, mother box uses to map it. It just it really and making that kind of blend in with the more fantastical aspects such as the war between eugenesis and apocalypse is something that i think could easily be uh really messy and done wrong but this book handles it and handles it well uh this also features a revisit to the fourth world the fourth world is uh kind of brought back in full force here in this story whether that be um, focus on the denizens of Apocalypse, really bringing Darkseid and making him terrifying. Darkseid is. To also really heavily featuring the kind of supporting characters of New Genesis and really putting a spotlight on them, whether it's Light Ray, and we'll talk about him a little bit later as well, uh, Kanto on Darkseid's... Uh, side uh or even forager forager gets a spotlight here forager has uh kind of jumped forward in his comic book stock with his debut in uh, season three of young justice but this is classic forager this is kirby forager and on that note a lot of the characters in this book retain their original kirby uh costumes whether it's barda's whether uh it's cranny goodness light ray dark side still has his little skirt in this version which i adore um or his tunic however he wants to call it and i really i enjoy seeing those characters because that that whole corner of dc comics of their multiverse is incredible and really deserves to have more of a spotlight shown on it i know there's talk about uh, DC developing a fourth world, whether it's a film or a movie, or those are the same things, uh, whether it's a film or a TV show, I think the fourth world could easily fill the hole that Game of Thrones is going to leave when it 
concludes with HBO. Uh, a fourth world HBO series would be incredible. But I really uh, I enjoy these characters and I enjoy this lore that is still really as readers we're still kind of on the fringe of because you can do research on it and i have but there are a lot of questions there are a lot of questions especially when you also take into account that this might not be in continuity this might be in continuity but we do have new 52 versions of these characters that don't line up with the characters that are shown in here in two separate uh, issues were shown both the original High Father as well as the new High Father that was introduced in the New 52. We see Orion, two different versions of Orion. We see two different versions of Barda, and it's really unclear on whether this takes place in that New 52 uh, pre-rebirth era where right before essentially the events of this book there was the dark side war between dark side and the anti-monitor and um or mobius and he at the end of that you know where mr miracle and big barda definitely had major roles to play uh big barda leaves to rejoin the furies and scott is left alone on earth which could potentially be the impetus for or really the flashpoint on what causes Scott to try and take his life in the first place. And the mention from Metron at the end of issue 11 where he says there is another world um, really has a lot of implications when you think about it. So I really enjoyed that. Um, now we're going to get into kind of my favorite moments, some of the favorite my favorite things about it. Um, I already talked about issue 5. I love issue 5 with a passion. Um, it is the single greatest love story in, I think, the entirety of the book, where you see two people who are struggling against the inevitable find comfort and trust in each other, whether they're um, being selfish or not. I think it's an incredible issue, and it is something that stands out and can stand out as a standalone story. Um, also, just Scott Free in general, again, as someone who has struggled with some of the issues that Scott does struggle with over the course of this story, uh, he is quite possibly one of the greatest protagonists that DC has ever churned out. And Tom King and Mitch Jared's treatment of him, whether it's bringing him to his ultimate highs and his ultimate lows, really brings to the forefront exactly why he is who he is and why he does what he does. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that we have a character who could absolutely be portrayed as the way that he has in the past. Someone who is carefree, who is constantly looking for ways to get out of everything. But this is a character who wants that. This is a character who can put on that face for other people. But he is, at his core, a deeply affected and a deeply emotionally disturbed person. And that affects him in his day-to-day -day life. And we see that metamorphosis, that evolution of Scott Free from the beginning where he is on his bathroom floor to being completely at peace with not just his son, but another, but a baby girl on the way. And 
his transformation is incredible. His transformation throughout the course of the book, whether we're talking about uh, his demeanor, his um, his attitude, his emotional state, or that sweet beard that he builds throughout the course of the story, he is on an odyssey. And I think that it is one of the greatest comic book heroes and a great comic book reinvention that we have ever seen. Another big thing that I really enjoyed was the infiltration of New Genesis by Scott and Barda in issue six. Uh, they, what I love so much about this is when you when they stick to the nine panel grid as Mitch Garrods does, he really is able to turn your attention towards the important beats of every movement uh, as they're making their way through the security of new genesis to make their way up to orion you get this sense of this isn't the focus this isn't their focus because the entire time they're talking about redoing their condo uh really building all the way up until the reveal that oh bart is pregnant and the way that that comes about, where they're both kind of smacked down and, you know, Scott pokes his head up and Barda's like, yeah, hey, by the way, I'm pregnant. All right. And then just gets up and starts battling again. And then at the very end of that little uh, tussle, Scott just runs up and hugs her from behind. And he's just so happy about it. And just all of the interactions that they have during that infiltration is incredible and the way that that issue ends finding that orion had been killed by Darkseid, and just the horror on scott's face as he now has to assume the position of high father the position he never wanted um is incredible uh, i also really liked all of the light ray stuff uh, light ray has never been someone who i've overly cared about when it comes to comics but this this comic made me care about light ray Maybe not in the way that I should, in the way that I want him. I want to see him fail at every uh, every turn and twist in the story. But when you see him, you know, having outbursts or being, you know, Orion's hitman or really not, you know, giving sass to Scott Free and Bart is always there to just be like, shut the fuck up, Light Ray. Every time, every time it is a running gag that I really enjoy and something that you could easily see happening over the course of, you know, a season or multiple seasons of a TV show where it's you would almost, you know, bring into like a uh, it's a it's the cheers effect. It's the cheers effect when Norm walks into the bar and they all go, Norm, as soon as he walks in, it's that kind of thing where it's like when Light Ray shows up, it's shut the fuck up, Light Ray, like every time. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Another thing I absolutely love, Funky Flashman. Funky is incredible. And I have to say, rereading this story after the passing of Stan Lee, who is the clear inspiration for Funky Flashman, not just in the story, but in the original uh, Mr. Miracle run. Uh, famously, Jack King created Funky Flashman almost as a parody of Stan Lee. And that is brought to the forefront in this book. And reading through this and seeing Funky in this light post uh, the passing of Stan Lee really flavors his character differently because in my first reading when it was coming out month to month i really didn't like 
funky. I didn't get him. I didn't enjoy him. But as you watch and as you read through it in, you know, today with that peppering of Stanley's passing, it really, I don't know, I, it gave me a bittersweet kind of feeling every single time I saw him because I thought this is, this is Stan's cameo. This is Stan making his mark on the DC universe with all of his, you know, calling Jumpin' Jack and telling the story essentially about Galactus, but you uh, transpose the Silver Surfer with the Golden Retriever. And really just all of the moments of, you know, him interacting with Jacob and their relationship. I, him, him saying, you know, Jacob comes up with the stories. I just, you know, give him words. I, uh, I loved seeing him in this story. And the story is better for him being in the story. And the treatment that uh, King and Garrett's gave to him was masterful. And I really, really appreciate it. Um... Other things that I really liked, just in general, about the book, um, his, I've never really seen Mr. Miracle as an offensive player. I've always seen him as, he's the escape artist, Barda is the warrior. But you see throughout this story that Scott is almost just as capable as Barda is when it comes to combat and warfare maybe not at all times when he gets smacked down by kanto where we see later on that uh, big barda easily disposes of kanto you see that big barda is of course the uh, superior fighter but scott's no slouch you see him in the trenches essentially fighting this war and i really appreciated seeing that different side to scott you see a lot of different sides to scott here uh, i also really enjoyed all of the uh dc universe references it seems like every issue scott is wearing a different superhero t-shirt uh the flash t-shirt from issue five uh is one of my favorites. I also really enjoyed uh, all the Batman references, Batman kills babies, and all this stuff that comes with that. I also I liked a lot of the when you know we're talking about art again, the glitches, because that gives you the clue that something's wrong, something is, uh, something's up. Not everything is as it seems. Um, I also really enjoyed kind of this view of Orion. Um, I know a lot of Orion fans really like to see him as basically like, oh, he's like, you know, DC's Wolverine, where he's like the gruff guy who grew up among all the gods. But when I look at Orion, my view of Orion is he is kind of this, uh, he's this varsity doofus bully, the guy who, you know, has all the, you know, rage that comes from apocalypse but always gets to hide behind the fact that he is essentially high father's heir and he's like you know i'm i'm the general i am orion i am of new genesis and you are beneath me and the way that he interacts with scott as someone who um does not have the greatest relationship with my sibling um i again really related to Scott and Orion's interactions. I really enjoyed really all of it. All of the interactions they had, the way that um, they would constantly say, he's not my brother, he's not my brother. And 
I just uh, I really I really enjoyed it. I also really enjoyed the uh, the last stand against Dark Side at the end of uh, issue eleven. Um, it was ah uh, man, it's something that only Barda and uh, Scott could pull off, and I really appreciated that. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. That's all I can think about. Um, there isn't a whole lot to say much else. Oh yeah, there's one more thing. Dark side is. The use of dark side is in this story. I, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. And it is caught on as like this cultural phenomenon. Now you see dark side is everywhere. You see it on t-shirts, you see it on mugs. Um, Everyone talks about it. Everyone references it. And I think this is one of the lasting legacies of this book, is that Dark Side Is is going to be a thing forever. Um, the use of the Dark Side Is, as I kind of, for me, as someone who has read through it twice, doesn't have all the answers, but has kind of come into what my interpretation of the story is, I kind of view Dark Side Is, the panels, the all-black panels where Dark Side Is shows up, as the anti-life equation. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I talk about uh, the ending and my interpretation of the story. But Dark Side Is is the concept of the anti-life equation. This idea that the anti-life equation at its core, to my understanding, is this almost unknowable equation that gives the user the ability to override any kind of hope or light inside of a person. Uh, this is, in essence, the purest form of darkness you can find, is the anti-life equation. And I think that it manifests itself in this comic because it always shows up at Scott's highest points and at his lowest points. And as someone, again, who, when you talk about depression, when you talk about those kind of thoughts, they come without warning. They just show up, much like these Dark Side Is panels. You could be having the best time of your life. You could be at Disneyland at the top of uh, um, the Matterhorn. No, that's a horrible... It's a horrible reference. I don't like Manor, Matterhorn. Uh, at the top of the Incredicoaster over in uh, California Adventure. And you could be having the time of your life and all of a sudden just Dark Side is. And it just creeps in. This idea that um, all of the darkness can be... All of the darkness in the world, in your heart, in the world, can be bottled up and put into one panel of Dark Side Is. It is every negative thought you've ever had, every negative um, emotion you've ever had. It is the creeping feeling that something is wrong, that you are wrong, and that you have made the wrong choice. Um, and I love the use of it here. Uh, in the first issue, I want to say it's the first issue, uh, Dark Side Is goes from one panel into growing into panel after panel after panel until it envelops an entire page and it's like that that whole uh progression in that first issue is very much what that feeling can be like when you get one negative thought and it just grows and it grows and it grows until it becomes everything you think about it's the only thing you can think about 
and I really appreciated the use of it. We see it at different points. We see it uh, really used as almost a stopgap, as a screeching halt to the forward motion of the narrative. You'll be reading through a normal scene where it could be, you know, them just going through a talk show moment or them having a conversation driving through LA and it's suddenly Dark Side Is. And it's just, it's something that I think is interesting because it represents the kind of darkness that lives inside people who have gone through trauma. And it represents the idea that the trauma is always going to be there. And it's fully summarized, I think, in the very last page of the book where they talk about, you know, dark side is, but so are we. It's this idea that you are able to move past whatever darkness is inside of you. You are able to make your own choices and you do not have to be defined by the trauma that you've lived through. And I, whew, I love the idea of that. Even if it's kind of framed around the idea that this story might not be real, um, I love the idea that the darkness is always going to be there, but you can choose to work past it. You can choose to be greater. You can choose to be more. So, um, yeah, that's all I got to say about Dark Side Is. And now we are going to jump into the most complicated part of this review slash analysis, uh, the ending. So at the very end of the story, uh, I'm going to go kind of from issue 11 all the into issue 12. Uh, Scott and Barda decide to kill Darkseid to save their son because Darkseid is willing to end the war and basically give up the anti-life equation if Scott and Barda surrender their only son. It's the choice that... Um, it's the choice that the, that High Father had to make. Giving up uh, Scott, who we really don't know his actual name, and they make a reference to it, and I love that. And it's something that I, I never thought about. Um, to give up his son to end the war. And Scott is unable or unwilling to make that choice. So he and Barda uh, kind of put up the ruse that, yes, they're going to give him up, but they decide to try and kill Darkseid instead. And they end up succeeding. Uh, Scott does not give up his son. He kills Darkseid. And at the very end, Desaad, who has been at Darkseid's side, dark side side the entire time um reveals himself to actually be metron who showed up in a quick cameo earlier telling scott not to look at the face of god but it's interesting to me that metron appears here because this is not the metron of old this is not the metron that we have seen back in the kirby days and really if all things are you know appropriate should be seeing in this instance because all of these character designs with little tweaks here and there on scott specifically um are all the original kirby designs this is the new 52 metron this is the metron that shows up during dark side war this is the metron that loses the mobius chair first to batman and then to owlman before they're both killed by dr manhattan this is the metron from our prime universe currently and he tells scott basically hey you won the game you found a way to avert disaster and you found a way to escape the confines of your situation and you win the game and now you can claim your prize you can go 
to this other world. And it is a giant, beautiful splash page of DC Rebirth, essentially, of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Nightwing. We see all of the Flashes, Wallace, Wally, Barry, um, all of them. And it's kind of this idea that this, it's almost this reveal that all of this has been taking place somewhere else. This hasn't been taking place in the DC universe as we know it. And Metron is giving Scott the opportunity to leave. He says, and I quote, You challenged the unchallenged. You dared the trap of death, and you escaped. And now it is time, my son. Interesting that he says my son. Time to look into the face of God. Also interesting because he tells him not to look into the face of God earlier in the series. And hear your cheers and take your bow. Where you are is not where you should be, Scott Free. There is another world. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people, when they talk about um, the idea that, oh, this is happening in a separate continuity or this is all uh, Scott's head, really put a focus on... But what about Barda? Barda is such an integral part of this series, and she moves the narrative along. Uh, I know I keep bringing it up, but it's it might be my favorite issue, issue five, where she decides to tell Scott that she wants him to stay and wants him to fight for his life. Um, a lot of people are kind of unhappy with the idea that this almost diminishes her role in the story, but the idea that Metron says this is not where you should be scot-free he doesn't say scot-free in barda he says scot-free this has all been scott's story um and i think this is also kind of foreshadowed earlier on with the whole uh brown eyes blue eyes comment scott talks about how you know your eyes used to be blue but now they're brown and barda says no they've always been brown but then we see at the very end of that issue that her eyes are in fact blue and i don't know personally if I think that there's ever been a definitive answer for that, um, I know that that's probably not the point, and the whole eye color debate is probably not important in the uh, larger scope of the story, and it's more, I think, just a clue to be like, hey, something's off, but I would like answers. Um, but yeah, Scott, this issue ends basically with... Uh, Metron giving Scott the choice to stay where he is or to go to this new world. And ultimately, we see in issue 12, he decides to stay. Um, he has different conversations. He finally shaves off his beard, which is a little sad, but uh, you kind of know that this is his choice, and I think that's good, and it shows that he's moving on from his trauma. But he's also visited by ghosts of all the people who have died across the course of the story. We see Granny Goodness come to him. We see uh, Forager come to him. We see Orion come to him. Uh, we get the reveal that he is that Bardo is pregnant again, this time with a baby girl. And it almost feels like he is being visited by the almost like the ghost of christmas past idea uh dark side shows up in his living room and then finally oh he's also visited by oberon has a really nice and touching uh final uh kind of interaction with him and then he has this interaction with high father at the very end uh high father shows up and tells him you know 
he basically tells him, uh, you face the anti-life equation. This whole thing has been the anti-life equation. It affected you. It affected the world that you saw, and you tried to fight it. You almost escaped it, but you didn't. And I think that's really telling because that means that this could possibly be the trial that High Father originally went through. That during the original war, Darkseid may have gotten the anti-life equation and, you know, put the same task against High Father. And the key to escaping it, the key to making it back to his world, the key to winning the war was to give up his son. And so he did that and he was able to continue on. Scott decided not to make that choice. And ultimately, when Metron gives him the, uh, basically, hey, you won the game, but you, you know, you kind of cheated, but you, hey, you won, you figured out a way to win without giving up your son, um, you can come home now, Scott chooses not to. And I think for me, Scott's choice is the biggest uh, takeaway from this book. Scott is overwhelmed with depression and PTSD for almost the entire book. And the book opens with Scott making a choice to slit his wrists to try and end his life. And the book ends with a choice, with him deciding to stay in this wherever this is instead of going back to the world. Um, and I love the narrative mirroring of that. I really enjoy it. I think that Personally, the way that I look at the sequence of events, um, whether or not this does take place with the same Scott Free that we saw in Dark Side War or not, uh, I think Scott Free tried to kill himself, and in doing so, or here, I'll back up, uh, Scott Free was infected with the anti-life equation. I think that's, they make this, uh, they, this case that Scott Free may have always been the anti-life equation, that he may have been the key to unlocking the anti-life equation. And I think the anti-life equation, whether it was in him, whether it was um, uh, used on him by Darkseid, it got to him. And it got to him at his weakest point, whether that was after Barda left and he was forced to live alone, or whether uh, it was just kind of out of the blue after Oberyn died. Um, he was struck by the anti-life equation, he was warped by it, and he was given that darkness that manifests itself as Darkseid is. And he chose to try and take his own life because of this depression, because of this darkness. And because of this, he was trapped in this almost limbo, alternate uh, kind of reality where he is living his life like normal. And he has to deal with this almost endless purgatory where he's fighting this war while trying to be a normal person. And as soon as he thinks that he is trying to, or as soon as the purgatory itself thinks he is trying to escape, it introduces a son to him. It introduces a son, which is heavily implied to be the lump. Um, we don't know for sure if that's the case, but it is heavily implied that his son could possibly be the lump 
which I think is fascinating and also super sad because if this is the embodiment of the purgatory, whether it is the lump itself or whatever is keeping him there, uh, basically manipulating him into staying and opening up this idea of this is the choice you ultimately have to make, um, Scott chooses that rather than go back to this endless cycle of uh, crises and rebirths and reboots and recontinuities, he decides to stay. And I think it, it's really interesting because it bucks through the tradition of, oh, the hero has won his freedom and so he goes home. Uh, he decides that he knows, maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't know, but in that moment, he knows in his heart that he wouldn't be happy going back to reality. And so he chooses to stay in this pseudo-reality where he is happily living with Barda. He has a child. He has another one on the way. And he has won the war. He's won the war. Um, he's the high father. He uh, didn't have to give up his son. All of New Genesis and some of even Apocalypse is now kind of at his mercy. And this is the perfect life. So he chooses to stay here. He chooses to give himself over to this fantasy because this is where he would be happy and whether that's because and whether that's uh directly influenced by the idea that he was super unhappy in his reality and chose to kill himself and now in this pseudo reality he's happy again he chooses happiness over reality and it's fascinating because it's not the ending you wanted. It's not the ending you thought was going to happen. But at that same, on the flip side of that, it's the ending that makes sense. Because Scott wrestles with depression and trauma all the time throughout this entire series. And issue 12 is the first time that we really see him move past it. Issue 12 is where he is able to finally be who he is. He shaves his uh, depression beard. He... The first time we really see him in the issue, he's in the shower and he's happy. Um, you know, he says good morning, for God's sake. Uh, all the conversations he has with the previous, uh, previously killed members of the uh, of the story are really interesting because they all are basically telling him like, "Hey, you almost made it out, but you didn't. You didn't escape. You're in hell, according to Forager, or you're in heaven, according to Orion." Um, it's so, it's so interesting. It's so interesting because on one hand, this is an incredibly sad story, but on the other hand, it's incredibly, uh, uplifting story because Scott is choosing to move past his trauma in that same notion that he is forever trapped in this other reality. But as Scott says, he can always escape. Um... And I think that what I love about it is that it's so up to interpretation. I have seen no less than 10 different interpretations on this story, and I love that. Because some of the greatest art, uh, whether it's visual, whether it's uh, in print form, whatever medium, is always beholden to the people who are witnessing it and is always going to be interpreted by different people in different ways. I choose to see it as this is Scott overcoming his trauma. This is Scott overcoming the darkness that was inside him, and whether it's right or not, 
whether um, this gets uh, followed up on and Scott eventually does come back to the world, or whether he stays there forever, Scott made a choice. Um, which I think is a big theme in this story. Scott lets a lot of people make choices for him. In issue 5, I know I keep bringing it up, um, but in issue 5, he basically selfishly puts it on Barda, basically saying, like, I'm going to get executed today, but if you say that I should fight, I'll fight. Putting all of his life in Barda, basically in Barda's corner, and saying that you have to choose whether I live or die. And that's incredibly selfish and incredibly wrong. But um, he makes that choice, he puts the choice in other people's hands all the time. When it comes to prisoner transfer, he doesn't make a decision. He says the decision's gonna come up to the commission. When it comes to um, the battle, when he is essentially a generally foot soldier in the war, it's not up to him. He's being led to places. Orion is leading him places. He says, yes, Orion, and he moves on. Um, all of this stuff that is almost inherently opposite to his character, because he's the person who's always supposed to escape choice, always supposed to escape anything, uh, he traps himself in this idea that other people are going to make better decisions than he can. And the end of this story shows or really features Scott making a choice once again. He makes two big choices across this story. The very beginning when he chooses to slit his wrists and kill himself. And then he makes the second huge choice at the very end where he decides to stay in this alternate reality. And it's sad, but it's also kind of hauntingly beautiful that... He has grown as a person, he has evolved, and he has become someone that he is happy with. Regardless of anything else that happens on the outside, he is happy with himself. And I think that's something that anyone and everyone can relate to. And anyone and any everyone strives to. They Everyone wants to be liked, but everyone at their core wants to like themselves. And I think when Scott realizes that the way that he's going to like himself, the way that he's going to move past this, the way that he is going to look past that dark side is, and also see that Scott Free is, Big Barda is, we all are, um, is an incredibly heroic choice, while also being an incredibly selfish choice, uh, choosing to go away from reality so that he can be happy. Um, and... Again, at the very end, he always says, you know, I can always escape. And Big Barda responds, can you? As she has throughout the entire time. But um, I don't think that's ever been the choice. I think he could he could escape if he wanted to. He always can escape. But he is choosing not to because he's finally happy. And I think that's incredible. Whether um, this was in continuity or whether this was an imaginary story. And when it comes right down to it at its core this is an imaginary story but aren't they all and that is my review and analysis of mr miracle once again uh if you haven't picked this book up pick it up i promise you will enjoy it uh the art is stunning the writing is amazing and i am such a huge fan of this book uh this book has been one of my favorite reads in a really long time when i got the trade i finished it in a day 12 issues you just you blast through them because it's so compelling and i really 
ah, I really want to tell more people about it. And that's the whole reason I did this episode. I want more people to appreciate this book. I want more people to just read this book, whether you appreciate it or not, whether you uh, see it the way I see it or you see it a completely different way, whether you love it or whether you hate it. This book deserves to be read. It really, really does. Um, so yeah, that is it for the review. Let me know what you thought of Mr. Miracle, whether you picked it up, whether you have never heard of it before, whether you're planning on picking it up. I would love to have a conversation with you about this. Uh, feel free to catch up with us and tell us all about your uh, experience with Mr. Miracle on Twitter at GeeksplainedPod. That's at Geeksplained, P-O-D, or through email to Geeksplained at gmail.com. I'm an old man. I still read emails, and I love having conversations with people on all forms of communication. Uh, for now, that's going to do it for the main part of this episode. Make sure you stay tuned for the weekly review, this week's comics countdown, as well as kicking off our official rankings of all of the MCU movies. We are ranking them 21 to 1. I am so excited about this list. You have no idea. And I'm excited to... Uh, show you guys where all of the films placed among that. Uh, but for now, let's jump on over to the weekly review. And welcome back to the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review things weekly. And the first focus of our weekly review series is Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol is the newest, most recent DC Universe original series that is on the DC Universe app. Uh, the show has been super good so far. It's been really nice. And uh, this week's episode was episode five entitled Paw Patrol. Uh, this is the part two to last week's Cult Patrol. And uh, this one continues on with the weird stuff. But we get a little bit more in-depth uh, on the story, the narrative of the team with the entire not just pieces of as we've gotten before but the entire backstory on crazy jane which also threw up something that i thought was really interesting because when they start the segment of showing her backstory it's in 1977 so jane is old jane this show continues to weird me out on their rolling timeline because Jane was in 1977, Rita Farr was in the 50s, I want to say Larry Trader was in the 60s, uh, Robot Man was in the 80s, I believe. And this is just, it continues to build that mystery of how are they all so young, how are they continuing on to be uh where they are now so i'm really interested crazy jane's backstory was really really cool um showing off kind of how her personalities dipped back and forth uh we also got a debut of the newest personality to crazy jane dr harrison and if you are familiar with uh gerard way's 
most recent Doom Patrol run. We saw the debut of Dr. Harrison as kind of this uh, malevolent uh, psychiatrist who has the ability to, at least in the show, I don't remember it being this way in the... Or, in the comic, but in the show, she has the power of uh, hypnotic persuasion. So she is able to basically tell, she's basically able to look into you, see what makes you tick, and is able to manipulate you in a way that she can get what she wants. Uh, and she was kind of played up to be a, uh, I guess, a nicer version of the character. The comics version was hell-bent on turning everyone into Jane. So um, we didn't really see that from her in this one, and I really, I am, again, really impressed by uh, Diane Guerrero's ability to make all of these characters mostly feel unique. And uh, it's got to be a blast coming up with the different mannerisms and all of the uh, the makeup and hair for all of the different personalities. So it's really cool. Another really cool thing, Mr. Nobody's back. Uh, fan favorite character so far. Also the main antagonist of the show. Uh, Mr. Nobody was noticeably absent last episode. And you could really feel it. He's really been bringing a fresh sensibility to the show. And I really appreciate that about him. Um, him being like this kind of omnipotent narrator character. I think really works for how weird and wacky the show is. So... Um, yeah, him coming back, he was a welcome addition. We also got uh, the return of the chief alongside him, who was now able to walk. I guess uh, Timothy Dalton didn't want to spend all of his uh, time in the series in a wheelchair. So Mr. Nobody gave him the ability to walk again and returned him to the Doom Patrol to take out the uh, giant eye in the sky, but also uh, made it so that if anyone said the name Mr. Nobody, he would begin to violently uh, vi violently vomit. So uh, that was interesting and a little funny uh, FX gag that I think uh, with practical effects and everything was fun. Uh, we also got to see more... My neighbor's dog is a big fan of the chief, I guess. Um, we also got to see more development in Rita's character. Last episode, she really kind of stepped up in this maternal role to try and help Elliot, the uh, the cult, the main, uh, the unwritten book. And um, it really sucked. It was really sad because she found Elliot while that Eye of the Sky was going on, and she wanted to bring him. She was like, you know, this isn't your fault. Let's go do something together. You and me, we'll hang out, we'll have fun. And then he just vaporizes in front of her, and you could see just how much that shook her. And at the end of the episode, when everyone has kind of returned, she's kind of committed to being like, he's still got to be out there, right? He's still got to be out there. And I'm really, ah, I'm really interested to see where her character goes from here because this might just be her lowest point right now. And narratively, at least, the lowest point is often the most interesting for certain characters. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Uh, we also got some cult v cult action uh, with Mr. Nobody, the Chief, and Dr. Harrison working together to establish an anti cult cult. And seeing those characters first as their uh, younger versions inside the uh, insane asylum and then their older versions who are like middle-aged and they're all dancing during the apocalypse it was really funny and i thought it was a fun little uh little interlude to everything that was going on and then we got a uh 
unfortunately, the uh, cyborg did not get to enjoy this episode as much as everyone else did. Um, at the very end, Mr. Nobody reclaimed the chief, and Cyborg blew his own arm off. And uh, Robot Man used the beacon in Cyborg's neck to kind of call for uh, Grid as well as Silas Stone to repair him, which I'm really interested to see where they go from there and how they... uh, Just really how this story between uh, Victor and Silas is supposed to end because we know that Silas seems to have a kind of darker agenda and I... I don't know. I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go, but I'm really interested. We also got to see that uh, this version of Cyborg seems to be much more based off of the original New Teen Titans version, where uh, when he finally pulled off his uh, Adidas track jacket, we saw that he still had the exposed shoulders, and it's mostly like his midsection, very reminiscent of his original design in New Teen Titans. So I liked the throwback, and I, I think it's different. I think it allows uh, both the actor as well as the uh, wardrobe department to work around some of the limitations that having him in full CGI would uh impose upon the character and i'm just i'm a fan of practical effects and the way that they put it put him all together to evoke the original new titans design i thought was really cool and then uh everybody kind of at the end of this episode just like at the end of uh the last arc with the um going to paraguay uh everybody's really down everybody's really down in the dumps and uh Chief's gone. Rita is a wreck after losing Elliot. Robot Man really wants to have a relationship with his daughter, but his whole interaction while they were in Nurnheim really shook him up. Uh, Cyborg is really, really at his at a very low point for him. And uh, Crazy Jane, Crazy Jane seems to be the only one who has a direction because back during the uh, the seventies where. Uh, Dr. Harrison was interacting with Mr. Nobody. Mr. Nobody gave her a name, a name, and he said, when all of this goes down, this name is going to come to you again, and you're going to need to seek this out. And we get a flash forward to Crazy Jane in modern day, and the very last line she says is, who the fuck is the Doom Patrol? So I'm interested to see because they're supposed to be the Doom Patrol, but they're not the Doom Patrol. The next episode is called Doom Patrol Patrol. All of the episodes have been, you know, blank patrol. So I am really interested to see where they go. And with the um, with the trailer, it looks like we're going to be introduced to Mento. And I really enjoy Mento as a character. I really enjoy how antagonistic he is to a lot of the members. So I'm interested to see, especially now that uh, Rita is kind of at her lowest point, how Mento affects her. So yeah, that is it for this week's uh, weekly review. Uh, Tell me what you liked about the Doom Patrol episode this week. If you haven't started watching it, let me know why. Or um, maybe why you're not really interested in the show. I have been really interested in it, uh, jumping into it, and then I've seriously enjoyed every single episode so far. There hasn't been a week episode yet. So, um, yeah, that'll be it for this week's weekly review. Check back here next week for the next episode, Doom Patrol Patrol, featuring the debut of Mento. And for now, let's jump on over to this week's Comics Countdown. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
And welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I'm going to be picking up on this week's new comic book day and the books that I think you should be picking up too. Uh, Typically we go five comic books, sometimes more, sometimes less. I'll be giving you the titles, the creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And as always, these synopses will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. Uh, If you have a synopsis voice that you would like to request, feel free to do so at GeeksplainedPod, that's at GeeksplainedPod on Twitter, or through email to geeksplained at gmail.com. Uh, this week we've got a bunch. Uh, last week we uh, we hit our mark right at five, and it was uh, kind of surprising that last week was so, I guess, light. But we are definitely making up for that with this week because we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books. Seven books, and these are just the top seven. There's even more books coming out this week that caught my eye and I think will catch your eye too, whether they're on the shelf or on your screen, whether you're using uh, Comixology or whatever comic reading app you use. But uh, these were the best of the best for me. These are the top seven that I think you should definitely be picking up. Uh, And we'll go ahead and jump into it. So the first book that we have up is Avengers number 17, written by Jason Aaron with David Marquez. This is a continuation of the uh, Avengers vs. Vampires storyline that's been kind of going on for the last few issues. This is where we recruited Blade to the Avengers, and they're kind of going against... uh, Or they're basically caught in the middle of this vampire civil war that's going on. So we'll jump into the synopsis right here. A new vampire order. The final fate of Dracula. The Avengers versus Ghost Rider, Blade versus the Shadow Colonel, and the world of the Marvel U vampires will be changed forever. Who will be the new Lord of the Damned? So yeah, uh, this kind of seems like it is the wrap-up for this current arc. Jason Aaron said way back when this run of the Avengers started that he had that the Avengers would have a core team: Cap, uh, Iron Man, Thor, She-Hulk, Captain Marvel, um, Black Panther, and it would also have a rotating spot that would be coming kind of in and out. First, it was Doctor Strange for the first arc. This one, it's been Blade. So I'm interested to see if they end up keeping him around. I think he brings a different uh, perspective to the team that I don't think anyone else has, that kind of uh, Jane from Firefly kind of perspective where he's willing to just say what he thinks without any kind of filter. And I'm interested to see if they keep him around or if they continue in that vein with having someone of a uh, like-minded quality come in for the next arc. But either way, it's been really interesting. It's been really interesting dealing with... uh, kind of the vampire side of the Marvel Universe, and I'm interested to see where this story ends. Another story that I'm really interested to see where it goes is Nightwing number 58, with uh, written by Scott Lobdell, with art by Chris Mooneyham. This series just seems, at least to me, to keep getting better as it goes. They took a 
frankly kind of dumb concept and they've been really you know pedal to the metal the whole time and i think it's really paying off for them this one is kind of uh last issue they introduced the joker's daughter back into uh not just bloodhaven but into uh rebirth comics we haven't seen her for a while i want to say the last time we saw her was still during the new 52 i could be wrong but that was the last time i remember seeing her so uh yeah we'll jump into the synopsis here the Joker's daughter is back. Or is she? While she wasn't shot in the head like Nightwing, Dula Dent might be facing an identity crisis even more traumatic than Rick Grayson's. Fortunately, the new Nightwings are doing their best to protect Bloodhaven, learning as they go, allowing Rick to try to help steer Dula away from the life of a homicidal zealot of the crazy clown prince of crime got away from me a little bit there at the end crazy clown prince um but yeah this is this has been really good and i always am interested when uh joker's daughter or any kind of like uh legacy villains show up and fight legacy heroes so i'm really interested in this i like how uh rick god it's still so dumb uh rick has been kind of mentoring slightly the uh, new team of Nightwings, even though he doesn't really want anything to do with that life. So I'm interested to see where this goes. I'm looking for stakes here. We almost got them in the last uh, <clears throat> the last arc where one of the Nightwings almost died. So I'm interested to see if they raise the stakes here uh, because I think we need it. I think we need it. We need something big and traumatic to bring Rick back into the uh, center stage, if you will, for the Nightwings. Next up, we have West Coast Avengers number 9, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Gang Hyuk Lim. Uh, this has been really good. This has been so good so far, and I'm really excited. If I had to uh, put up my top team books from both Marvel and DC, I, right now, at this moment, I would probably put West Coast Avengers up as the best team book for Marvel, and then uh, Young Justice up as the best team book so far for DC. So uh, both very similar in their uh, stylings and their uh, target audience, I think, but both of them are telling very different stories, which I really like. So we'll jump into the synopsis here. Creepy Hollywood cults, gruesome blood sacrifices, pop religion collides with serious mystic power in sunny Los Angeles, and somehow the new masters of evil and Kate Bishop's parents and her ex-boyfriend are tied up in it. The West Coast kids go deep undercover to get to the bottom of the Temple of the Shifting Sun, but they're about to find out that nothing is as it seems. So yeah, uh, I guess with uh, Doom Patrol as well, we are dealing with cults all over the place. Last issue, uh, they kind of split up into uh, guy team and girl team to basically attack this cult from two different directions. And I'm really interested. We get a lot of, at least today, living in LA, we get a lot of um, cult-y kind of groups like um you know the scientology stuff and all the kind of hollywood cult stuff that you hear about on the streets here in uh here in the bad town of los angeles but i'm interested in it's the whole reason that i was initially drawn to this book is because living in la um 
it's a different sensibility than when I lived in Arizona. And I it keeps drawing me back when they throw up art of certain places or certain feels for things. And I really, I really relate to it and I really am uh, keyed into it. So I really enjoy it and I think you will too. Uh, this book has been really good from start to finish so far and I think this issue is going to continue on with that kind of quality. Speaking of quality, we have Uncanny X-Men number 14, written by Matthew Rosenberg with Salvador La Roca. Uh, this book also has been really great. I jumped back on with the annual that saw the return of Scott Summers, and uh, this book has been just fully shifted uh, into the highest gear since then. Um, it's been really, really good so far, and they've uh, introduced sort of like retro suits for everybody uh they said in the last issue that it was because the, they were the only suits that they could find in storage but i'm a sucker for nostalgia and it's been really helping me out seeing them in all their uh, old school uniforms and basically again this is the kind of x-men hit squad the dark gritty x-men juxtaposed against the age of x-man uh, mutant cast that's over there and the more kind of hopeful fighting for Xavier's dream uh, team. So this has been really dark gritty. This is uh, Cyclops and his team basically with a hit list. I know he says in the comic that it's not a hit list, but it's definitely a hit list on uh, mutant kind's biggest threats and they are trying to mark them off the list one by one. So uh, we'll jump into the synopsis here. Cyclops and Wolverine have drawn together a new team of X-Men from the ashes of X-Men disassembled. And now, they turn their eyes to setting their agenda. Cyclops has a list. A list of things the X-Men have to take care of if it's the last thing they ever do. So yeah, again, this has been really good. Uh, I'm interested to see how the list uh, is handled narratively. Um, because you know that things are going to go awry at a certain point, so it just depends on how long it's going to take till it gets there. So I'm really interested to see what happens, and uh, I cannot wait to see them go through most of the list. Another book that I've been really enjoying uh, is Batman number 67, written by Tom King with art by Lee Weeks. Tom King, one of the focuses of this week's episode with his Mr. Miracle run. And Lee Weeks, one of my favorite comic artists working today. That is a recipe for greatness. Anytime that Tom King and Lee Weeks have uh, teamed up together, it has been magic, and I'm expecting this to be no different. This is the continuation of the uh, Nightmares run, which... As I said last time this came up in uh, the Comics Countdown, I've been kind of ready to move past. I'm ready to see uh, what's going on with Thomas Wayne, Flashpoint Batman. I'm ready to see uh, why these nightmares have been going on. We're supposed to be getting some answers pretty soon. I don't know if it's going to be in this issue if it's, or if we're going to have to wait till like issue 70. But uh, I'm interested. I'm interested to see and uh, I'm interested in the premise of this book. And I think after we read the synopsis here, I think you will be too. The nightmares continue as Batman chases a new foe in an impossible race. Over rooftops, across alleyways, up and down the streets of Gotham City, this lightning-fast crook outsmarts the Dark Knight at every turn. Is that because the man under the mask is someone more familiar than he knows? 
artist Lee Weeks returns to Batman for an all-out action issue unlike any you've seen before. So again, like the big uh, selling point on this issue for me is Lee Weeks. He is an amazing artist. If you are not familiar with his work, you need to get familiar with his work because he is one of the greats that is uh, going around right now. And uh, I'm expecting... I have big expectations for this issue. Uh, Tom King has said in uh, recent interviews that near the end of Nightmares, we're supposed to be getting some answers on why they're happening and why this uh, abrupt break was taken from the main story. So I'm hoping we get more clues here. We also got a great, uh, a great little um, cutoff, a great little uh, cliffhanger at the end of the previous issue that was dealing with the question and Selena Kyle, where the entire, uh, basically the entire issue was them talking about the, uh, the 50th issue, the Bat-Cat wedding issue, or the non-wedding issue, I guess, and, um, it's, it, it's really interesting because, uh, she kept giving that point that she wrote in the note that Batman can't be happy and uh, at the very last panel of the very last page of last issue she said she lied so I'm interested to see if that gets followed up on and how that's going to fit into this story right here. Another book that I am chomping at the bit to know what happens next is Thor number 11 written by Jason Aaron with art by Lee Garbett and uh, this is a big one. This is our uh, our gateway into the War of the Realms, which is the big uh, company-wide crossover event for 2019 for Marvel Comics. I'm really excited. Thor has been a blast being written by Jason Aaron, as always, and I am excited to see where this kind of prologue fits into the larger War of the Realms event as a whole. So we'll jump into the synopsis here. Prelude to the War of the Realms. Lady Freya struggles to protect Asgard's refugees as Malekith's forces grow bold. But the All-Mother won't have to protect Midgard alone. Enter Thor and his faithful dog, Thori. The War of the Realms is coming, but the invasion starts here. So yeah, uh, last issue we got a big uh, focus on Thor and Odin and their relationship. So it looks like this issue is going to be the follow-up to that, featuring a big uh, emphasis on the Thor and Freya relationship. I'm always interested in uh, Freya-centric stories. I feel like we don't get enough uh, info or really enough spotlight on her and she is as much to do with the development of both Thor and Loki as Odin, perhaps more. So I'm interested to see where this goes, and I'm really interested to see uh, how her story fits into War of the Realms as well. But the number one book that I am looking forward to, the one book that I think if you pick up any book this week, this is the book you should pick up, is Spider-Man Life Story number one of six, written by Chip Zdarsky with Mark Bagley on art. Uh, this we talked about last week uh, during the top five comics you should be reading in 2019. Uh, this was number three? I want to say it was number three on the list, and um, I'm so hyped for this book. I'm so ready for this book. Uh, we'll jump to the synopsis, and I'll tell you a little bit about my, uh, my feelings on it. 
1962, in Amazing Fantasy number 15, 15-year-old Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider and became the Amazing Spider-Man. 57 years have passed in the real world since that event, so what would have happened if the same amount of time passed for Peter as well? A special high-end limited series that's a part of the celebration of Marvel's 80th anniversary, Spider-Man Life Story combines the talents of Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley to tell the entire history of Spider-Man from beginning to end. Set against the key events of the decades through which he lived, in this first oversized issue, when Flash Thompson is drafted to serve during the Vietnam War, Spidey must weigh the question of where his responsibility truly lies. So yeah, how could you not pick this book up with that kind of synopsis, with that kind of story, the narrative potential in that? with the potential four across uh, the six issues, because we are talking about each issue I'm assuming is going to be taking place in a different decade. We'll be doing the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, and then all the way up to now. Um, watching somebody like Spider-Man, who's so beloved as a character and who people relate to so much as someone who... Uh, is the everyman of the Marvel Universe. This is a character who many people, including myself, at one point or another uh, related to and sympathized with on more than one occasion. So I am really excited to see where this book goes. I'm really excited uh, because I think Chip Zdarsky is one of the best Spider-Man writers to ever throw his hat in the game. And he is teaming up with Mark Bagley, who is iconic when it comes to Spider-Man being the architect behind all of the Ultimate Spider-Man run along with Brian Michael Bendis. So I am super excited about this. I'm really, I, I really think you need to pick this up. And they're starting at one of the most tumultuous times in the history of not just the U.S., but the world during the Vietnam War. So it is incredible. All these books are amazing. To recap, we have Avengers number 17 we've got nightwing number 58 west coast avengers number nine uncanny x-men number 14 batman number 67 thor number 11 and spider-man life story number one uh if you think i've missed out on any books if there are any books that you think i should be picking up at the uh local comic shop uh feel free to let me know but for now we are going to jump into the first the uh debut of the newest segment the newest series for the podcast where we will be ranking every mcu movie that has ever been leading all the way up to the release of avengers endgame on april 25th so here we're going to be counting them down from 21 all the way down to the best of the best and uh yeah let's jump right into it All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are kicking off the countdown. We are going to be ranking every single MCU movie from worst to best. Counting down all 21 
at the time of this recording, films in the MCU. Uh, I have taken the time to critically, as much as I could, uh, look at each film uh, individually, which is tough when you're looking at 21 interconnected films with the 22nd Avengers Endgame debuting uh, next month. And this was a big thing for me. This was a... uh, this whole uh, MCU, this whole journey with you know the Avengers and uh, the Infinity Stones, the hunt for them. Uh, I think I saw somewhere that Kevin Feige referred to phases one through three as the Infinity Saga, and I cannot stress how much I love that. I freaking love that. And going through these films again, it was nostalgic. You know, you're you're looking at ten years worth of films and every single film that I watched every single film that I took the time to put in this ranking I just I I thought about it and I thought about seeing these movies almost every single movie I saw that night I saw the night that it debuted and um it is crazy to think just how much time has passed since I first sat in with uh my parents and my little brother at uh, to watch Iron Man 1 for the very first time. And uh, just how much not only the movies have evolved, but how I've evolved as a person. Uh, 10 years is a long time. A lot can change in 10 years. And a lot has changed in 10 years. And now I am sitting here in... Uh, in LA and I am uh, talking about how these films uh, stack up against each other and the impact that they've made on my life. So this is a big deal for me. This is a big retrospective on some of my favorite things ever. And uh, I want to stress, I want to put it out there right now. A couple disclaimers. One, there are going to be mild spoilers for every film that we talk about. Um, I just, I can't avoid that. If you haven't seen them, what are you doing? Avengers Endgame comes out next month. Watch these films. Um, But there are going to be spoilers. And two, out of all of these films, even the ones that rank dead last, none of them are garbage films. None of them are awful none of them are horrible they're they are the worst of the best and uh, i don't think marvel has ever put out an outright bad film when it comes to the mcu and the tie-ins with it uh there have been weak films there have been um not great films but there's never been an objectively bad film from them in my opinion and uh, another disclaimer this is of course my personal list it is my opinion Uh, you may disagree with certain films that are in uh, certain spots you may agree with me and if that is the case I would love to talk to you about where you would rank these films how you would rank them why you would rank them and let's just get conversations going I love having conversations uh, with all of you about the stuff that we talk about here and this is something that is near and dear to my heart so I am here I am ready to have these kind of conversations but with all of that out of the way uh we are going to be ranking every single week from 21 all the way to one uh leading right up to the 
debut the premiere of Avengers Endgame. So we are going to be spacing this list out, and for this week, we are starting with the first four. We are starting with numbers 21, 20, 19, and 18, respectively. So uh, with all of that out of the way, with all of the little intro and the uh, sentimental nostalgia established uh let's go ahead and jump into the countdown and at number 21 we have thor the dark world this is the second film in the thor franchise this was one of the uh leading in films following the first avengers and uh this film i will say after re-watching it is the weakest film in the mcu there are certain things that they did right there are certain things that i definitely would have uh avoided personally uh and one of the one of the things that i really liked was the opening i thought the opening to this film was great the start of the film where they are going into a battle and thor shows up and they're fighting against we have uh a cameo from a Krogan who, or a Cronin, who uh, I think Krogan's Mass Effect. We uh, we have a uh, cameo appearance from a Cronin who, at that time, was a throwback to Thor's debut, but also was the prelude to all of the amazing Korg lines from Thor Ragnarok. Uh, it's just. It's funny because you see, you clearly see a Cronin there in Thor: The Dark World, and you have to you have to realize that these are all taking place in the same universe. So that Cronin could have potentially been directly related to Korg, and I just I love the idea of that. However, with the great opening that it has, there is no follow through as the film goes by the film just kind of peters out there's really no uh there's really not a whole lot of redeemable qualities uh the villain is weak and i uh, it pains me to say that because i love christopher eccleston as an actor uh he is as some of you may know my favorite doctor from doctor who he was the ninth doctor and it pains me because when they announced this casting i was so excited and malekith is an incredible character if you are not reading the current thor run or uh have not read the amazing character revival that uh jason aaron has done on malekith to make him not just a not just an incredible opposing figure for Thor, but the main antagonist for the big uh, Marvel event that's going to be happening this year. Do yourself a favor and look back at that because Malekith can be everything that you need in a villain. And unfortunately, that just didn't translate to Christopher Eccleston's performance. He's stilted. He's boring. He has no... Uh, no really defining features as a villain. He is basically bottom of the barrel when it comes to uh, Marvel villains, and that sucks. It really sucks. Uh, there's also a lot of missed opportunities with Malekith, with introducing Jane Foster more into the world, having the Warriors 3 be a bigger part of the film. They got 
so many good actors to play these roles. Sif is incredible, and they just kind of push her off to the side. The Warriors 3, incredible. I think they killed off, you know, Fandral in Thor Ragnarok, and I feel really bad for Zachary Levi. I don't know what he's doing right now, or if his, uh, if his career ever got back on its feet. Sad to think about. Anyway, and with the just the overall missed opportunities with the narrative, uh, making the ether, the aether, uh, the reality stone, they could have done a lot more to uh, for to really foreshadow the fact that it was going to be more important later on. I don't think they made the aether seem as important as it was. It was just kind of. Uh, I would say if you are a uh, if you're an anime fan if you're a Dragon Ball fan it was kind of like the fruit of the tree of might and you know Malekith is basically this roaming uh, charismatic anti-charismatic uh, marauder who is using the aether to kind of beef himself up and that's really all it's used for there's no warping of reality there's no it, it just it didn't really translate uh, to the, to the effect that them talking about you know no two infinity stones should ever be in the same place uh, really caught a lot of people off guard, including myself. And I was like, oh wait, that's supposed to be an infinity stone. Which stone could it be? Because it beefed up Malekith, so we thought it was the power stone, but it's not the power stone. It was just it was a mess creatively. Um, unfortunately, and that and it sucks because this is one of the best performances by Tom Hiddleston as Loki. He is scheming, he is fun, he is at his Loki est in this film. And I thought up until Thor Ragnarok, this was the best showcase for his character, with him being conniving, the twist at the end of him supposedly dying, and then it revealing that he has trapped or gotten rid of Odin somewhere, and he is now in control of Asgard, and Thor has no idea. A lot of narrative potential, but they just didn't do enough with it. So, for all those reasons, Thor The Dark World comes in at number 21. At number 20, we have The Incredible Hulk. This film was the first of the interconnected stories. This film debuted after Iron Man 1 and starred Edward Norton as Bruce Banner. Uh, famously, Edward Norton was kind of booted off the MCU Avengers cast after there were disputes on money and other things. Reports are that he wanted to be the highest paid actor in the Avengers cast, and the studio was not willing to play ball with that. So he either walked or was fired, and they replaced him with Mark Ruffalo. And I think that worked out pretty well. Um, it's still kind of one of those funny what-ifs. Like, I kind of think of what if... Uh, they were able to reach an agreement, and Edward Norton was seen alongside Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans. I think that would have uh, really brought a different feel to those interactions. Because the Mark Ruffalo Bruce Banner is very different from the Edward Norton Bruce Banner. And again, with narrative potential being what it is, and hindsight of course being 2020, a lot could have been done with that character in that environment. Uh, I also really liked Thunderbolt Ross here. Uh, Thunderbolt Ross was the 
pretty much the only thing carried over from the Incredible Hulk film, him appearing or reappearing in Civil War and, of course, knocking it out of the park. He is fantastic and a fantastic addition to the MCU. And if they did have to bring something back, I'm glad that it was him. Uh, unfortunately, that's pretty much uh, it when it comes to good things. I will say Tim Roth was fantastic in this film. I thought he was a great uh, pseudo kind of proto-Captain America when they were juicing him up with the prototype of the super soldier formula. And I thought if they had just kind of kept him as is, I would have much preferred them to just like see us or uh, see them keep beefing him up until he is just unrecognizable but still in his smaller form. And I think that would have been, that would have made for a much more uh, exciting final battle because Abomination just did not do it for me. Uh, I get that they wanted to really make the villain physically match up with Hulk, and this was kind of at the point in the MCU where it was like, hey, you know what's great? We'll make the villain a complete mirror of the hero. You saw this in honestly you saw this in iron man one you saw this in captain america this ended up being something that they pulled for iron man 2 uh black panther was also criticized for this and i'm glad that we're kind of moving away from that but this was a really just and of course the film hasn't aged well either the cgi looks really dated nowadays from nowadays standards uh we are in a post thanos world now so anything outside of that really just does not kind of uh really meet the bar the minimum of what it should be and abomination i just thought it was just you know a big cgi fight and those can be good but this wasn't really anything that we hadn't seen before uh also i just i bless her heart i did not really like Liv tyler in the role of betty ross uh i hope kind of that they recast Betty Ross if they ever decide to bring her back into the MCU. And that's going to be a little tricky depending on where they go with Endgame. But I just, I didn't connect with her. Her and Edward Norton didn't have really any chemistry. Um, and it just, it was, it was unfortunate because a lot of the film is based off of that relationship. And that film is going to live and die by their interactions. And unfortunately for me, it just didn't work. Uh, this was also, like I said, the first real connection to the MCU. This was the first uh, proof of concept that these movies could be interconnected with the post credit scene of Tony Stark walking into a bar and interacting with uh, General Ross talking about the Avengers Initiative. Not naming it but uh basically saying you know we got it we're putting a team together so again for me uh the the performance of edward norton uh thunderbolt ross the fact that tim roth all the way up until he became the abomination was a very good and driven villain uh 
put this slightly above Thor the Dark World, but I could not put it any higher. So it sits comfortably at number 20. At number 19, we have Iron Man 2. And a lot of people I know will have this at their number 21, at the very dead last. But for me, after watching it again, after having not seen it in a very long time, Iron Man 2 is more fun than I remember it being. Um, Again, we're talking about great openings. The great, great opening of this, of Tony Stark jumping out of the plane. We do get a little bit of uh, whiplash viewing the press conference where Tony Stark reveals that he's Iron Man. But the real opening is uh, Iron Man jumping out of the jet to... to ACDC's Shoot to Thrill and landing in the middle of the opening ceremonies of the Stark Expo. And that's just fun. It is Tony Stark to a T. This is followed up by the uh, the court hearing in front of the uh, Supreme Justices of the U.S. and all of the stuff that goes on with that. Or I don't know if it was the Supreme Justices. It was, uh, I think it was the U.S. Senate or Congress or something. But he is Tony in this film. Tony is at his Tony Stark est. He is incorrigible. He is confident. He is cocky. He has a swagger to him, and he always seems to be able to kind of come up with stuff on the fly. Uh, preparation is a big thing for him, and he gets compared to Batman in that respect a lot. But For my money, when Tony Stark is improvising and is able to pull something out when he wasn't prepared, that is Tony Stark to me. The ability to adapt is his greatest superpower. And we see this all the time. Him using the bare bones of preparation combined with his ability to adapt to save the day. We see this during the Monaco scene where he throws on his Mark V and I still think the coolest suit up that he has done. The This one and then the suit up for Infinity War are like neck and neck for me but for my money I think after watching it again just with how uh, inventive it was at the time I loved the suitcase suit up scene where he pulls off this mark five armor and i wish we had seen more of that armor because i'm a huge silver centurion fan of uh and i really loved the throwback and the callback to that armor uh this is also the debut of roadie as we know him don Cheadle taking over the role from terrence howard who also was in uh money disputes with uh marvel land with disney uh no just marvel at this point because the disney merger hadn't happened yet but um I uh, I can't, in good conscience, say that I like Don Cheadle more than Terrence Howard as Rhodey, because we didn't get enough time with Terrence Howard's Rhodey in the first film, and we have no idea where he would have gone if they had continued on with him in that role. But I will say that Don Cheadle is incredible as Rhodey, and he is fantastic, and this film is a good showcase of him being the supportive and responsible friend that at a certain point has to take matters into his own hands when Tony is spiraling out of control. Uh, 
We also get the debut of War Machine, his War Machine armor, which is incredible as well. We get that nice little uh, house party battle that they have in Tony Stark's house before he flies off. Uh, we still don't know exactly what took him so long to get the armor to the uh, to the Edwards Air Force Base, seeing as how Tony's house in Malibu and then the Air Force Base are only a two-hour drive. Yet, he, him flying the Iron Man suit, he left at nighttime and didn't arrive until the next day. Food for thought. Food for thought. Uh, but again, this falls into the trap of awful villains. Uh, Mickey Rourke, they're... I'll put this out there. I like Mickey Rourke as an actor. He is. He starred in one of my favorite films, The Wrestler. Uh, as a huge pro wrestling fan, I love that film. And I just... I really liked what the concept was for this version of Whiplash, but it was one of those things where Mickey Rourke threw on an accent and had so much done for his like his hair and his makeup that it felt like the character was wearing him. And so I, I just he again was a weak villain. Uh, I thought his battle with Tony in the Monaco scene was far superior to what the end ending battle ended up being where he just jumped in another iron man suit and they had a little tussle i really didn't like it i thought sam rockwell was a much better antagonist him being basically the loser version of tony stark he was incredible i am so sad we haven't seen more of him since then he did pop up for a brief cameo in the uh mandarin marvel one shot where uh takes place post iron man 3 but um i really am sad that we haven't seen more more of him and i would have liked it for him to be the main antagonist and for him to really have uh tried to engineer tony's downfall and of course tony being able to adapt and outsmart him uh and then as i touched on before the film has a weak finale it ends up being just another you know cgi on cgi fight where Iron Man and War Machine are facing down all of these drones, and then they end up facing down Whiplash, who is in his own Iron Man suit. And it's just like, we've seen this before. We we saw this before in the first Iron Man, where uh, Tony went against Iron Monger, and it's just, it's samey, and it felt like it was retreading ground that we had already seen before. So for those reasons, uh, Iron Man 2 is at my number 19. And my number 18, just edging out Iron Man 2, is Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 just edges out its predecessor by that much. And for me, I think Iron Man 3 gets a bad rap. A lot of people talk about how bad Iron Man 3 was. You know, people have, I've heard people say, you know, that's the weakest of the Iron Man films, to which I polite, politely disagree. But this film was, in a lot of ways, a better Shane Black film than a Marvel film. Because this film went in a lot of directions that I don't think we expected marvel or tony stark as a character to go he got a lot of character development in this one and what i think a lot of people kind of overlook is that the joss whedon version of iron man and i've seen this touched on uh in different reviews and on different um uh different video essays that the joss whedon iron man is a just an overpowered smarter than everyone dick and yes 
Tony Stark can get that way at times, but that's not who he is at the core of his character. Uh, the Iron Man in Avengers 1 and Avengers 2, I think, is a very different Iron Man through the first Iron Man movie, uh, through some of Iron Man 2 and Iron Man 3, as well as Civil War and beyond. I really think that when it came to Iron Man, Joss Whedon, who is a phenomenal director and knows basically the formula to an ensemble cast, the way that he does that, for me, from my opinion, uh, seems to be boiling down their basic character traits, their basic archetypes, and building off from there. And for these characters, they aren't just these basic archetypes. That works when you're able to uh, see these characters grow and adapt and find more facets to these characters like on a TV show, like he did with Firefly, like he did with Buffy. But when it's condensed into a two-hour format, you just are getting the basic main... Uh, you're basically just scratching the surface of the characters, really just putting out their archetypes so that they're different from each other. And what Iron Man 3 did was it gave Tony some pathos. It gave Tony something that the other films prior to this didn't really touch on, and that is his PTSD. Tony wrestles with PTSD and anxiety attacks in this film, and as someone who has suffered from anxiety and panic attacks in the past, it was incredible, and it was compelling, and I loved watching Robert Downey Jr. give another uh, dimension to this character. Flying up into a wormhole and expecting to die had a lot of ramifications ramifications heavy ramifications on tony stark as a character and him wrestling with that having nightmares the the idea that in the first iron man when he first meets nick fury in the post credit scene and he says the world is bigger you've become part of a bigger world i don't think tony realized that that meant aliens of course, Nick Fury, as we know now after seeing Captain Marvel, was withholding the information about aliens. But I think that when you are faced with something like that, faced with your own mortality and the idea that at his core, Tony is a futurist, always looking forward, and now not knowing where his place is in that future, I think is an incredibly compelling idea. And it, it is played with here. I kind of think they could have gone even further with it but i really liked what they did uh this also gives a lot of fan service there's a lot of fan service in this film when they talk about all of the armors that end up showing up uh different references to other armors uh we get the mandarin who has been a long time iron man villain well, quite possibly his greatest villain besides maybe alcoholism and we got a lot of fan service from you know we got the iron patriot armor as a fan of the comics and someone who actually really enjoyed dark rain i loved seeing uh the iron patriot armor uh this also put a spotlight on the man inside the suit this out of every single film that iron man features in this is the film with possibly the exception of Spider-Man Homecoming. This is the film where Tony spends the least amount of time in an Iron Man armor. He is, a lot of this is focused on who Tony is without the armor. Uh, Steve Rogers plays uh, 
he really pl- placed that idea not just in Tony's head but in us as uh, an audience's head when he said the line you know big man in a suit of armor take that away who are you and I feel like ever since that line Tony has been trying to answer that question whether whether consciously or subconsciously he has been trying to answer the question of who is he if he doesn't have the armor with him and that's you know been for better and for worse when it comes to his highs and lows as a character um but this places a big focus on him who he is at his core which again is an adaptable super genius this is someone who famously as uh jeff bridges put it built an arc reactor out of a box of scraps in a cave and that's not something that he prepared for that's not something that um he had you know 45 different uh contingency plans for that's something that he adapted to and that is his greatest strength as a character uh, focusing having one of your big set pieces when tony you know infiltrates the basically aldrich killian's aim mansion and is able to make his way through their using household items and being as assassin's creed as tony stark can be uh was one of my favorite points in the entire film and possibly the best unfortunately there was they they did uh they did counteract the amount of tony not being in the armor with just armor overload in the final act of the film and i I have mixed feelings on it because, of course, again, with the fan service, I loved seeing these different iterations of the armor, but at that same point, it kind of made them less special to me, and the fact that they were uh, just operating on their own, I, I realized that this was probably you know a precursor to the drones that eventually became Ultron, but the armors themselves felt less special because there was, you know, 40 of them, and it really again kind of devolved into a cgi on cgi fight where these armors are fighting all the extremist soldiers and it just it wasn't interesting to me because no matter what happened you know how many armors got beat down or ripped apart i knew there were at least like five or six more so for me i didn't really enjoy that also i have to say the mandarin twist uh i i remember my first viewing of this being completely outraged at this mandarin twist because they were setting they were setting up ben kingsley both in the trailers and for the first half of this film as a new take on the mandarin character him basically essentially being a terrorist and i loved that especially at the time that it came out it felt topical it felt modern and it felt like this is a genuine evolution for this character and when you come to find out that he was just an actor doing propaganda videos that was set up by aim and aldrich killian who is the real mandarin as he calls himself though we find out during that one shot that i talked about earlier that that's not the case that there is a real mandarin uh i was incredibly disappointed at the time after having seen it a few times and with you know uh being away from the initial shock of it i can say that it makes sense and i can say that i am entertained by it 
Ben Kingsley is an incredible actor and the amount of versatility that he's able to show going from uh, his character to his character of the Mandarin to being revealed as Trevor Slattery was great and it showed his range and Ben Kingsley, Sir Ben Kingsley is an incredible actor. I just wish that they had really gone all in on him because he could have been an incredible villain that really could have lasted multiple films and multiple phases. Um, This film also highlights the idea that if the world is wide enough for all of these Avengers to be in the same place, why aren't they helping each other? Uh, The President of the United States, for God's sakes, gets kidnapped in this, and no one thinks to call Captain America. No one thinks to call in the Avengers. I realize that Tony is a narcissist and that he thinks he can do it on his own, but it just it felt like where is everybody especially because this was the first film coming out of avengers um this was the first film that was part of a wider universe now and they didn't spotlight that at all the only thing they got was a small post-credit scene that really felt like a throwaway um and of course, again, with Aldrich Killian that we mentioned earlier, another weak antagonist. I didn't like him. Um, I It sucks, because I really like that actor. And I really think... I think it's Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce is an incredible actor, and I really... At a certain point, way back when, I had Guy Pierce pegged as a Nolan Riddler. And I thought he would have done wonders with the Edward Nigma character in a Nolan, uh, Christian Bale Dark Knight set. And I would have adored that. And I really think he was misused here. Both him and Ben Kingsley were misused. And it's neither their faults. It's the fault of the screenwriters. It's the fault of the showrunner. And I really... Ah, it's a missed opportunity again. A um, couple positives, though. Don Cheadle continued to shine as Rhodey, him being the Iron Patriot, basically being since uh, Tony refuses to be the Iron representative of the United States government, and Rhodey is still a colonel, I really liked that they painted him up and trust him out as basically a modern day version of Captain America, and that worked for me, and I really liked it. I... uh, I also like the time that, just like Tony, he spent outside of the suit. Him, you know, when they've got him captured and they're roasting the uh, Iron Patriot armor, trying to basically melt him from the inside, and he's like, okay, okay, let's do this. He opens up the armor, and he just goes straight for Aldrich Killian and hit, punching him across the face. I really liked that. and I Or it wasn't Aldrich Killian, it was, um, oh god, I can't remember his name. But he was the main extremist guy, and he just jumps out, socks him in the face, and it's like, yeah, that's Rhodey. And I really, I like his uh, his back and forth with Robert Downey Jr. The two of them have great chemistry. Robert Downey Jr. also had really good chemistry with Harley, and I know that's a controversial uh, opinion, because a lot of people didn't like Harley as a character, but I enjoyed him. He was uh, smarmy, he was kind of a little shit at times, but he really gave... Tony a run for his money and I liked that they had a little they really garnered a bit of a relationship and this I do see something you know really uh, manifesting and evolving as time goes on especially since we have heard that Ty Simpkins who played Harley and is now older uh, might be appearing in Endgame question mark who knows 
But uh, yeah, so I do put it above Iron Man 2, I do put it above Incredible Hulk, and I do put it above Thor The Dark World, but Iron Man 3, I could not in good conscience put any further than the number 18 spot. So that is the uh, part one of our countdown, numbers 21 through 18. For every week following this, we're going to be doing these in increments of three. So next week, it will be numbers 17, 16, and 15. And those numbers, just re-looking at my list right now, might surprise you. They surprised me when I finished doing the... uh, really doing the list so look forward to that next week Uh, i want to say thank you for listening all the way through uh this was a fun episode for me i really put a lot of time into the intro and i really put a lot of time into uh mr miracle i really dug this again i have to reiterate mr miracle was my favorite cover to cover comic of 2018 and if you haven't read it do yourself a favor, pick it up on Amazon. You can pick it up. The entire uh, 12 issue maxi series and collect is collected in a paperback. You can pick that up for 16 bucks. Uh, of course, you can also go to your local comic book shop, pick it up for I want to say it's tw- like 25, 26. But do yourself a favor, pick this up, read it. It's incredible. Uh, also, thanks for giving the feedback on the weekly review. I've been really enjoying it. I really, I've, I've been really enjoying Doom Patrol, and I hope you have been too. Uh, also, for me, I really hope that you enjoyed the uh, beginnings, the uh, part one of our ranking of the MCU, getting to relive all of these films, which basically I've grown up with. It has been a lot of fun, and I hope you had a lot of fun reviewing these with me. Once again, if you have any opinions on the films we talked about, if you would have slotted different films in these spots, feel free to let me know, uh, whether it's on Twitter, at GeeksplainedPod, it's at GeeksplainedPod, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. And uh, I want to say thanks for continuing to listen to us. Uh, over the weekend, with our uh, top... Uh, top five comics you should read in 2019 as well as our one year anniversary episode we crossed the threshold we are officially over 3,000 listeners so thank you very much I'm really excited about that and I really uh, really just I'm jazzed I'm jazzed because we are still a young podcast and just the fact that you guys keep coming back and listening to us is uh it means the world to me so thank you very much for listening uh as stated before i am definitely going to be campaigning i'm i would love to uh get this out this review because i know uh Tom King, the writer of Mr. Miracle is a big podcast fan and i would love if uh you listening at home would be able to share this and possibly tag tom king because i'd love to get him on the podcast i would love to get him on the podcast just to talk about mr miracle his batman run uh heroes in crisis i would love to talk to him about heroes in crisis uh whether it's uh before or after the series wraps up he has had conversations on podcasts that i listened to in the past word balloon one of my favorite podcasts podcasts that you should definitely check out that is committed 
pretty much solely two comic books. Uh, he's had some wonderful conversations with John Suntress. Shout out to him on there as well. And uh, I would love to kind of have a sit down and talk to him. Plus, I think it'd be really cool because we're in year two of the podcast and it'd be really awesome to say that our first comics industry guest was Tom King. So uh, yeah, I'll keep you guys posted. I would love to have that conversation with him because I have a lot of questions, a lot of questions about Mr. Miracle, a lot of questions about Heroes in Crisis, and I would love some answers and the opportunity to kind of pick his brain a little bit when it comes to some of the most controversial DC comics that are out today. Once again, thank you for listening to this. Let me know what you thought of Mr. Miracle. Let me know what you thought of anything we talked about in today's episode. And we will be continuing on next week with our big 50th episode. I know, it's feels like just yesterday or just last week that we did our one-year episode and now we are doing our big 50th episode we are halfway to 100 so basically i just want to say thank you for sticking around with us and uh looking forward to doing more for you as well but that is next week same geek time same geek channel and for now for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time